Good morning, Harvest Fellowship. It is great to see you, although I can't see you. <laughs> uh, may God bless you, though, and uh, welcome to Harvest Fellowship. I hope you are receiving my updates. Uh, uh, I believe that God is on the move. What Satan plans for our harm, I believe God plans for our good. And uh, let me remind you of our real activity each month we have a different real activity where we encourage our people to go out and share the gospel in a practical way and this we've changed it for so this is going to be for the rest of uh, March as well as April so you got to do it twice all right and the real activity is call someone who is not attending church meaning not attending virtual church and ask if they have a concern you can pray for so you're going to find somebody who is not in church, uh, not a part of a church, and ask if they have a concern you can pray for. Tell them that this is one of the ways that Harvest is trying to show the love of Jesus in a practical way during the corona uh, epidemic, pandemic. So that's our real activity, okay? Let's go ahead and begin in prayer. Well, Father, we praise you. We recognize that you are on the throne and that you have an incredible plan, and we want to get in on it. We know that you are all-powerful. We know, as we see in our passage, that Jesus is victor and conqueror over disease and over death. And so we can trust in you. We ask that you would bless our people, that you would keep us all safe, and that you would get rid of this pandemic in our church, in our community, in our nation, and in our world. So please come, Lord. Uh, we're, we recognize our absolute dependence on you. We also know that you are good. So we seek you. Now teach us from your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. We're going to be seeing how Jesus has power over sickness and death. So a woman walks into a library and asks if they have any books on paranoia. The librarian says, they're right behind you. That was a joke. This is not a time for paranoia, but it is a time for caution and care. Fear is out of bounds if you believe in God Almighty. And we have the fear of the Lord. And because of that, we definitely should be afraid to sin. Uh, the fear of the Lord is good. But other than that, we, do, we have no fear whatsoever because God is in control. I believe God is going to do something very extraordinary with this pandemic. The first thing is to unite the church, our church, Grow us up and send us into a hurting world prepared by God to receive the gospel. He's using this to prepare people to receive the gospel. The message we can give them is the message of this sermon. Jesus has power over sickness and death. Let's read our passage. Mark chapter 5 verse 21. When Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the sea. 
one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, My little daughter is dying. Come and lay your hands on her so that she can get well and live. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd was following and pressing against him. Now a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years had endured much under many doctors. She had spent everything she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. Having heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his clothing. For she said, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be made well. Instantly, her flow of blood ceased and she sensed in her body that she was healed of her affliction. At once, Jesus realized in himself that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? But he was looking around to see who had done this. The woman with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. While he was still speaking, people came from the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? And Jesus overheard what was said. He told the synagogue leader, don't be afraid, only believe. He did not let anyone accompany him except Peter, James, and John, James' brother. They came to the leader's house and saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, but he put them all outside. He took the child's father, mother, and those who were with him and entered the place where the child was. And he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talathakum, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl got up and began to walk. She was 12 years old. At this, they were utterly astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Now, as we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, if you remember in Mark chapter 4, we saw Jesus' power over nature, commanding the storm to be silent. Then in chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, we saw Jesus' power over the demonic. And here we see the, his power over sickness and death. And by the way, this is true both physically and spiritually, sickness and death. So let's walk through this. Verses 21 through 24, we see that Jesus hears the cry of the distressed. If you remember, Jairus, who was a synagogue leader, he saw his need and he came to Jesus and begged him earnestly to heal his little, little daughter who was dying. He heard, Jesus heard his cry, and so he went with him. Jesus hears the cry of the distressed. Do you remember when you came to the Lord? Perhaps you were struggling, had a great need. You saw your need, and you came to the Lord, and he came through. And he came alongside you of you, and he helped you through that time. That's our God. Jesus hears the cry of the distressed but we must recognize our desperate situation. And that's what we see with Jairus. 
he recognizes, now he was a man of prestige, and yet he comes to Jesus, falls at his feet, and begs him earnestly because he recognized his need, something he was out of control with. So we must recognize our desperate need. Now, all of us are always in a desperate situation. We all have a desperate need, yet we don't recognize it so often. But living in this world, it is broken, it is cursed, and we're not in control. So we're always in a desperate situation, but when we realize it, it can change our prayer and our life. I love the prayers in the Psalms. In fact, they're very comforting in times of distress and difficulty. I would encourage you to read the Psalms. Let me read Psalm 40, verses 1 through 3. Great Psalm. He starts out, this is David speaking. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord. And he turned to me and heard my cry for help. He brought me up from a desolate pit out of the muddy clay and set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and they will trust in the Lord. So you watch here, David recognizes his need. He cries out to God and God comes through. He picks him up out of that difficult situation. Not only that though, he puts a new song in his heart, fills him with his spirit and then uses him to reach others. Many will see and fear and they will trust in the Lord. We see uh, in Psalm 42, another great passage where it says, as a deer longs for flowing streams, so I long for you, God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while all day long people say to me, where is your God? I remember this as I pour out my heart, how I walked with many, leading the festive procession to the house of God with joyful and thankful shouts. Why? My soul, are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. And so we see that we must recognize our desperate situation, but that God comes through in that. And I believe in these kinds of difficult times, revival often comes. In these times of distress, let me give you a little history. In the 14th and 15th century, uh, they experienced several things throughout this time period. First of all, the plague, Black Plague, uh, and then corrupt religious authorities all the way up to the, the level of the Pope. That was the time where, which I call the triple Pope problem. They had actually three different Popes vying for power, excommunicating each other. They finally had to get rid of all three and put a fourth one in. But there was, the people saw this and they saw their leaders as corrupt and as things going down. And, and then they also had the danger of Islamic invasion of Europe. In all of that, I believe, partially set the world up or Europe up for the Reformation. And we saw the great revival of the Reformation, starting with that one man, Martin Luther, who experienced God's grace, and he told everybody else. <laughs> and many will see and fear and come to the Lord, as it says in Psalm 40. And so we see that. 
Fast forward to the 60s. 1960s had turned the world upside down and adversely affected the planet with the birth of postmodernism. But it also opened up the people to the gospel, which brought about the Jesus movement in the 70s, which I have argued, I believe, is the greatest revival the United States has ever experienced as far as the numbers of people truly being born again, coming into the church and getting on fire for God. Uh, Many people in our congregation were saved during that time, and myself included. Many were open to the Lord for a brief time at 9-11, if you remember that, but sadly it didn't last. But if we step out and show that we care, offer prayer, and share the gospel in this pandemic time, I believe we could see revival. Are you willing to go the extra mile at this great time of need and opportunity? Jesus hears the cry of the distressed. Now, as he's on his way to go help Jairus and his daughter, we have this interlude in the middle, verses 25 through 34, where we see that Jesus has power over sickness. And the woman comes along. She has this problem with this issue of blood for 12 years, which makes her unclean. She's not allowed to go into the temple, so she cannot worship with God's people because of that, because of the law, the the Old Testament law. She spends all her money on doctors who do not help her. She is in a desperate situation, and she sees Jesus, and she goes to him, if I could just touch him, she says, I could be healed. And sure enough, she's healed. Uh, Her story is incredible. I like the way Jerry Vines uh, puts it. Sometimes we turn to the wrong doctors, and this is no no slam on our doctors because he's not talking about physical doctors. So listen to this, okay? He says here, there are a lot of doctors around proposing a cure. Dr. Pleasure says, come to me, I'll cure the need of your heart. Yes, Dr. Pleasure has some sweet-tasting medicines, but I warn you, they are laced with poison. Then there is Dr. Intelligence. Come to me, fill your mind with facts and I'll solve the the deep needs of your life. Well, Dr. Intelligence may have something that will swell your head, but he doesn't have a solution to the deep longing in your heart. Some people try Dr. Religion. They go to church and get a little salve of ritual. They go on Sunday to old Dr. Religion and find out how good I am. A lot of people have tried Dr. Religion, but he has never fulfilled the void in anyone's heart. This woman had been everywhere she knew to go, but there was a doctor she hadn't tried, the great physician, Dr. Jesus. And he came through. What we see is that Jesus brings wholeness to the unclean. Remember, she was unclean because of this. Ritual impurity, according to the Leviticus law. She was not allowed to go into the temple because of that. In Isaiah 56, 3-8, it predicts a time in the future, I believe it's talking about the new covenant, when those who are unclean according to the old covenant will be made clean. And that's what we're seeing here. The new covenant is different than the old covenant. Jesus actually took on her uncleanness and her sickness and imparted to her his purity and health. 
I want to read Isaiah chapter 53, verses 3 through 6, a passage that speaks of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. It's predicting it in the future, but it also brings in the idea of healing. So I want to talk about what it means and what it doesn't mean. Look at what it says, Isaiah 53. We'll start in verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken down, struck by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. This is clearly speaking of the substitutionary atonement where Jesus paid the penalty we were supposed to pay for our sins. And that when we place our faith in Christ, all of our sins are completely forgiven. He takes our punishment upon himself and he takes his righteousness and puts it to our account. And that's what we see in this wonderful case of the substitutionary atonement. But this is also bringing out the idea of physical healing. And we know that because in Matthew 8, verse 17, he quotes this passage when someone was healed physically and says this passage applies to that. So how are we to understand this idea? Uh, I do believe that healing is in the atonement. But I do not believe that means God is going to heal everyone. I believe that there's healing in the atonement and everyone, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you will eventually receive that healing. Sometimes it's in the afterlife. It's after Jesus comes back or we die. By the way, when we get to death, we'll see that that also is covered. Jesus conquers death but that doesn't mean we're not going to die. But it does mean that healing is in the atonement, and so sometimes we can expect miraculous healings in our lives, that God does do these kinds of things. Uh, quite interestingly, when you notice the, what he says to the woman who was healed, verse 34, daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. And that is, sozo is the, the Greek word there. He has saved you. Go in peace. Now, to, to be saved is a broader term. It does include what we typically think of as my sins are forgiven and I'm now reconciled to God. But it also, in, in, in this case, it's being used to be made whole in general. God's plan is eventually to make us all whole, both physically and spiritually, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I think what can help us uh, in, in this is we, we, to understand Jesus, I believe we need to see that he was unique but emulative. What do I mean by that? He had a unique ministry, but we are to emulate it in certain ways. That uh, he healed the sick, and sometimes we can see miraculous things take place in our lives as well. Let me explain this by looking at the book of Acts. Okay? The book of Acts, there are three major ways people interpret the book of Acts. And, uh, and the way you interpret it uh, the way you understand it will affect how you apply it to your life. And the three major ways, first of all, is cessationism. Now, cessationism means that's the belief that 
when you look at the book of Acts, we see that as that's the way it was done back then, so it's a historical record, but not the way God does it today, that God ceased doing the miraculous and prophecies and tongues and those kinds of things, but he did it at, at the beginning of, you know, in, in the book of Acts alone, okay? Now, cessationism is quite interesting. Nobody was a cessationist up until the time of the Reformation. The church, the early church, did not believe in cessationism. It was the Reformation in response to the superstitions going on that they pendulum, in my opinion, pendulum swung too far the other way and embraced cessationism. And that became very popular in the 20th century. Actually, today, very few theologians are cessationists. And it's because the Bible clearly teaches against it. Let me show you a couple passages here. First of all, in Acts chapter 2, verses 16 through 21, this is on the day of Pentecost. After they experienced Pentecost, they all had gathered together. They all spoke in tongues and had this miraculous, amazing experience. And then the, they spill out into the streets and the crowd ask what's going on. And Peter gives an explanation. Now look at how he starts his explanation. Verse 16. He says, on the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. So what he's saying there is this is that. This, what they just saw, speaking in tongues in this incredible event, is what Joel prophesied in Joel chapter 2. And then he quotes Joel chapter 2, verse 17. And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my servants in those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy. I will display wonders in the heaven above and the signs in the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now he's quoting Joel chapter two, but notice what he says at the very beginning of it. It's in the last days. So the last days began at Pentecost. The last days started at Pentecost and this is what we can expect in the last days that he'll pour out his spirit on all of his people, that they will prophesy, have visions, dreams, etc., etc. young men and women and all of his people. And then it even includes up to the very end, verse 19 and 20, the sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. That's clearly the book of Revelation reveals is talking about the very end of time. And so all of this, this is that, is to be experienced in the last days. And we have not passed the last days. So we should expect these kinds of things to be taking place in our lives, okay? So cessationism is incorrect. Now another passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses eight through 12. Interestingly, in this passage, uh, the early cessationists actually use this passage to try to prove their belief, but in fact, it proves the opposite. This is the great love chapter, by the way. We're going to skip verses 1 through 7. That's what you usually hear when you're at a wedding. And then we'll go on down to 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. So notice, they will end when the perfect comes. So 
we have to figure out, what does that mean? What does it mean by the perfect? Well, he explains it in verse 11 on. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. So that's his illustration. For now, we see only a reflection, as in a mirror, but then face to face. That's when he's fully grown. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. So what, what is the perfect? When the perfect comes is when we see him face to face. That's what Paul is saying here. When are we gonna see Jesus face to face? When he returns. See how 1 Corinthians 13 fits perfectly with Acts chapter two. It's at the return of the Lord when these things will cease because they will no longer be necessary. So cessationism is an incorrect way of understanding the book of Acts. Now the opposite of this is what I call identicalism. That really came true, uh, became to be embraced by the Pentecostalism of the 20th century. And they typically say, whatever's in the book of Acts, we can do now and even greater. In fact, they usually use John chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, to explain that, to, to show that. So I want to turn there and look at that and see what it actually says. John 14, verse 12. Here we see, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and he will do even greater works than these, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, some see this and they say, see, Jesus said, I do these works, all these miracles. My people, they're going to do even greater miracles than I do. But in actuality, that is not what this is saying. You see, because the greatest miracle of all was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There will never be a greater miracle than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so to say that we're going to do greater miracles than that is simply not what this passage is saying. He is saying the works, when we look at this, yes, I do think it's entailing miracles. That we're going to be, we can expect to see miracles take place. But the greatest work of all is salvation. Jesus, at the end of his ministry in the book of Acts chapter 1, the he had about 120 people gathered, waiting to seek, uh, you know, to see what's going on and so forth. So, you know, I mean, that's pretty good church growth, you could say. But then after Acts chapter 2, when Peter preached that message in the power of the Holy Spirit, 3,000 were saved. And we see the exponential growth, the great miracles take place throughout the history of the church to where today we have millions of believers throughout the entire planet. And so that's what he's referring to here. And by the way, when he says, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it, he's not saying carte blanche, you just ask it, you believe, you get what you want, I want a billion dollars or whatever. No, this coincides with 1 John 5, 14 and 15, which says, ask anything in accordance to my will and I will do it. To be in his will is the same thing as to in, say, pray in his name. Under his authority is what that means, to ask in my name. And so it would seem that identicalism is not correct either. You see, because Jesus, both Jesus and the apostles, had a unique ministry in that when they healed people, they were instantaneous and universal in almost every case. 
that's what we see, instantaneous miracles. There's only one miracle where Jesus healed a man, he could see shadows and then touched him again and he saw completely and perfectly. But that really still is instantaneous. Uh, so we see this instantaneous and universal healing everybody. The apostles spoke and wrote the very words of God that became the New Testament, the Bible. They had absolute authority over the entire church. We do not have that gifting today. Uh, so the, there is a uniqueness of Jesus and the apostles, and I think we can even see that uniqueness in the book of Acts. You see the apostles' miraculous, instantaneous abilities in Acts 2, 43, 5, 12 through 16, 19, verse 11, and 28, verse 9. Yes, though we see miracles being done by those who are not apostles, but it doesn't seem to be saying that it's instantaneous and everybody all at once uh, as far as the non-apostles and not Jesus. Okay, so there's a uniqueness, and that's what I call continuationism. Yes, these miraculous gifts are to continue but there is a uniqueness to Jesus and the apostles. Uh, but we don't want to uh, forget the supernatural gifts are still working. We see this power that Jesus had over sickness, and sometimes we can see that happen even in our own lives. When I've prayed for people, and I've prayed for a lot of people, I have seen many not healed. <laughs> I've seen many partially healed or at least blessed and felt peace because I prayed. And every now and then I have seen a few dramatic and complete healings uh, that you could say are miracles like we see in the Bible. And so I think continuationism is the best way to understand this. But we see the power resides in Jesus. Jesus has power over sickness. Now I want to give a, uh, ask Kim to give her testimony of this incredible power that's still available today and also how it can bring people to Jesus. Because in the book of Acts, we notice almost all of the miracles took place on unbelievers bringing them to Christ. So Kim, share us your testimony. Hello. Well, a few months ago, I shared this story with Larry and others at our life group. And he asked me to share it with you today. So that's what we're going to do. Etienne and I were married in 1991. And seven months after our wedding day, we were moving to Togo, a little country in West Africa. I had never been outside of the USA, and we had no idea when we would come back to the States. I had no idea where my husband was bringing me to. Etienne worked for the United Bible Societies as a Bible translation consultant. He was helping many local groups translate the Bible into their languages. He taught them principles of linguistics to help them in their work and check their translations too. He traveled every month and was sometimes gone for the entire month. In 1991, if you can remember that far back, um, some of you weren't even born yet. <laughs> but President Reagan had just negotiated the end to the Cold War with the Russian President Mikhail Gorbachev. I still remember the first time Reagan spoke those famous lines, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. Um, as a result, many little nations in the developing world were hungry for democracy, and they began to rise up challenging the dictators running their countries 
and Togo, where we lived, was among them. Shortly after moving to Togo, the entire country shut down. Kind of feels like it is today <laughs> um, with the coronavirus, only just a different reason, right? We could hear occasional targeted bombs exploding in the middle of the night, causing a constant tension in the country. Our bags were always packed, ready to go in a moment's notice. Then one weekend, gunfire broke out, and we could hear skirmishes and yelling just beyond the next row of houses in front of us. After spending two days with a few other missionary families from other mission groups like the Southern Baptist and the Christopher Blinden Mission, we all decided to caravan out of the country. We notified our embassy and then left along with about 100,000 other people on that one weekend. Um, that's how we ended up in Benin. And we lived there for about four years. And it was during this time that I met my very good friend, Bindu. And that's what this story is really all about. So both Togo and Benin were French-speaking countries, and that was the national language. There were also a lot of indigenous languages, but I did not speak any of them, including French. I worked for one year at the English-speaking international school, and that's where I met my friend Bindu. She had also fled Togo for a more peaceful country, and both of our husbands traveled a lot, and we became really fast friends. Bindu was Hindu, and me, a Christian, both of us lonely and in need of a friend. It was hard to live in the developing world. The poverty, lack of infrastructure, isolation due to the French language, deficits, um, French language deficits, and that was just my deficit. Bindu's French was great. Um, a complete change in the way of life and a lack of supportive family and friends. Um, it was lonely and isolating. Bindu and I grew up, grew in our friendship and through sharing our lives together and encouraging one another. She would pray for me to her gods and I would pray for her to the one true God. And I told her that. I told her I was praying to her for, G um, praying to Jesus for her. I knew her kindness and we accepted each other right where we were at. And I did pray for her often. You see, I don't know how I would have survived in my new country without my friend Bindu. What a gift she was to me. We often had tea and cakes together. She made the most delicious brewed tea with milk. We talked about everything and throughout our friendship, I was able to share many stories about who God is and how he had saved me through Jesus Christ. And I loved her like a sister. During one vacation to the U.S. after living in Benin for about four years, Etienne and I decided to not return to Benin. It was an unexpected move. <coughs> he requested a change of location for our family. We had a nearly two-year-old son who had gotten malaria four times in his young life, and I had recently recovered from typhoid fever and had also had a couple of my own bouts of malaria. Life was not easy, and having family nearby seemed like a dream. 
I was a weary mom and very much ready to come home to the USA, and the Bible societies honored Etienne's request. I was not able to return to Benin, where my friend Bindu continued to raise her two young children. I called her from the USA to tell her, and we both cried. I encouraged her to connect with another friend of mine that was a strong Christian woman, a part of the Mennonite church. She had a heart for God and knew, and I knew that she would embrace my friend Bindu into her circle. She had a Bible study every week, and Bindu still worked at the school where that woman's children attended. So it was a natural connection. And our move was sudden. And it wasn't until a year later that I was able to return to say my final goodbyes to both my friend Bindu and to my Mennonite friends. To this day, we have never seen each other again since that last day on the beach in 1998. She began to faithfully attend those Bible studies. And though and through the friendships of the Hollinger Jansons, she learned much about the love of God for her and his saving grace. In that day, there were um, no cell phones. The internet, to my knowledge, hadn't been created yet. And so we weren't able to stay connected very well. But in one conversation, she told me um, all about what she was learning through those Bible studies. I asked her if someone would, were to ask her, are you a Christian? What would she say? And she said, I would tell them that I'm praying a lot and reading the Bible a lot. And I said, okay. That was a clue to me that she was not at a point where she was ready to give her life fully to Christ. <clears throat> I prayed to God that he would save her for his kingdom. And I thought about Rahab. <coughs> Even though my friend is nothing like Rahab, she wasn't a prostitute or anything like that, um, but she was, on the other hand, extremely beautiful, intelligent, gentle, and kind um, from India with this British accent that I, I still hear in my own mind, and she always called me Kimmy. <laughs> but like Rahab, Bindu was my friend in a place that I surely would not have survived without her. And because of her kindness and her sisterly love towards me, a child of the one true God, I prayed earnestly that God would save her, that he would redeem her for his, for his kingdom, just like he did for Rahab, who had saved the Hebrew spies. God saved Rahab and all of her family before the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. Surely he could save Bindu. Sometime later, Bindu and I were again connecting on the long-distance phone call, and she just had recently returned home from the UK where most of her family had lived. Her grandfather had been very ill. In fact, he was on his deathbed with all family members by his side. This was an extremely difficult time for Bindu. She shared with me that there were many unresolved conflicts within her family, and her grandfather's death would only make the divisions worse. She was desperate for her grandfather to not die, but the doctors had invited the family to say their goodbyes. After Bindu said her goodbyes, she left the hospital room and went out into the hall, and she began to pray 
to the one true God. And she said, well, she pled with him. And I remember her telling me that she said something like this to God. Okay, God, I've been learning about you for some time. And you say that you are the only God. If you are the only God, the one and only God, then I pray that you save my grandfather and allow him to live. Miraculously, he did not die. He was healed. Bindu was amazed, and all of her family was amazed, and so were the medical um, community people around her grandfather. She gave her life to Christ because of her grandfather's miraculous healing. It had convinced her that God was showing her that he was who he said he was. When she returned to Benin, she was baptized in the Atlantic Ocean off the coast in the Gulf waters, a place we had often visited and watched the, ra- the waves roll in. I cannot tell you what a gift her announcement was to me. God had answered my prayer. It made all my difficult days in Benin worth it. Eventually, we lost touch again. She had moved to Chad and then to Tanzania, and I did not hear from her for many years. Then I got the chance to go to the UK with St. John's Prep, where I work. And I had remembered that my friend Bindu's family had lived in the UK, so I began to search for her on Facebook. I did not find her, but I did find her daughter, all grown up. When I was in the UK in 2017, 20 years after leaving Benin, I got to reconnect with her on the phone, and we talked for a long time. Her life has not been an easy one. Um, She lived in a couple other African countries since the last time that I had seen her. Then her husband left her for another woman, and she returned to the UK, and it has not been easy for her. She has had her struggles in the world, but she was steadfast in her faith. Every word was filled with the love of God and her commitment to Jesus, despite her hardships. Her love for God was more than evident. One of her two children also became a Christian, and she asked me to pray for her too. God performs miracles. He did for my friend Bindu, so that she could trust in the name of Jesus. And I often thank God for her and cannot wait to share with her some tea and cakes at a table one day. Wow. What a great testimony. That's what God's doing today in our lives. So Jesus has power over sickness. Now, this was the interlude. Remember, okay, he's on his way to help Jairus and, her, and his daughter. And then we see this great miracle take place. And that brings us now he's going to go and, and conclude this episode with Jairus and his daughter. And we see in verses 35 through 43 that Jesus has power over death. In this section, uh, he comes to him, and look at verse 35. While he was still speaking, people came from the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? So she actually died. Now, when Jesus says she's not dead, she's just asleep, he's referring to how he's going to heal her, but she did actually die. We know that from Matthew's account of this episode. When Jesus overheard what was said, he told the synagogue leader, don't be afraid, only believe. And we see that Jesus has power over death and he raises this little girl to to back to life and completely restores her. Now, one of the interesting things here, because you could look at this and he's on his way to heal her 
and he gets sidetracked and then she dies. And you might think, well, what happened? Why was that? Well, Jesus works on his time, not ours. Similar thing took place with Lazarus. When he, uh, he was sick, Jesus waited to go and then he died and then he raises him from the dead. And so Jesus works on his time, not ours. Let me read Daniel Aiken's commentary on this. He says, Jesus is interrupted with bad news. Jairus' daughter is dead. Hope is suddenly gone. Jesus responds to the bad news with a challenge. It is as if he is saying, despite all appearances, I'm neither distracted nor disinterested in your need. I work in my time, not others' time. I will not be hurried or dictated to. Believe and watch what I do. So he works on his time. Death is an enemy. People say, well, death is natural. Death is not natural. It certainly is natural to this world now because of the curse, but it is not the way God originally planned this. We were not supposed to die. Death is actually an enemy. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15, 26 says it is our last enemy. And so Jesus, when we see him raising people from the dead, in fact, he does this three different times. He raises three different people, Lazarus, the widow's son at his, own, at his funeral, and then here, this, we see Jesus is in combat mode. He is defeating the enemy. That's what we see here. That's what we've been seeing throughout Mark. There is a battle going on between Satan and God, and Jesus is defeating him. And Jesus experienced the first resurrection. And sometimes we use the term resurrection to refer to these kinds of things, but in actuality, it's probably better to call these a resuscitation because it's different. Jesus' resurrection is unique in that when he was raised from the dead, he received a new resurrected body that cannot die. And that is a promise that even the Old Testament gives to us that when the righteous, uh, uh, when Jesus comes back and the, ri- the righteous will receive a brand new body that cannot die. That's what happens at the rapture. We receive this incredible new body that cannot die. But Jesus, he was raised from the dead. And so we see this as un- that as unique. But he did raise three people from the dead. And some others were raised even at his death, if you remember, the people from the tomb and so forth. And the Old Testament uh, re- re- recounts a couple of people re- being raised as well. In conclusion here, though, after she's raised, immediately, notice verse 32, immediately the girl got up and began to walk. So she's immediately healed here. It says she was 12 years old. At this, they were utterly astounded. God never ceases to amaze us. Literally in the Greek, it says amazed with great amazement. (laughs) Utterly astounded. God never ceases to amaze us. The Gospel of Luke actually uses several different Greek terms for to be amazed, astounded, astonished, amazement. They even have more Greek words than the English words. And so sometimes we use the same English word for two different Greek words because Luke was going out of his way to show people were dumbfounded. Wow! When they saw Jesus. I believe that uh, he uses these words to express what Romans 11, verses 33 through 36 state. Let me read Romans 11, 
33 through 36. He says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Have you ever, have you been wowed by God lately in your life? Because when we're digging in his word, when we're praying, when we're seeking God together, when we're believing in God, we can have these experiential encounters with God that can bring that wow factor in our lives. And I believe God wants to do that. Um, maybe you're asleep like Jairus's daughter and God wants to wake you up, okay? So what are you going to do during this pandemic? Are you gonna sit? Are you gonna coast? Are you gonna fear? Are you going to backslide or are you going to thrive? Let me encourage you. Four things I would really encourage you to do this week. First of all, read my last letter. That letter on what does this pandemic have to do with the end times I think is important. I I believe it was prophetic. I, 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 I strongly encourage you to read that that letter. It can encourage you. I also want you now, once you're finished watching this, to gather as a family and discuss this service. Don't just go to dinner. Gather as a family, discuss this, dig up the scriptures again, and go into more detail with this. Also, Wednesday, have a family devotion and use the material and video that John Fleck has prepared that is on our website right now. And each week we'll have a new thing there for that so uh, have a family devotion on Wednesday in the the middle of the week or you know Thursday or whatever whenever you want to do that or as John says every evening (laughs) have a family devotion and then also get involved in a life group and you might ask how can I get involved in a life group they're not allowed to come together they are because we're doing it with Zoom our life groups are resuming with Zoom okay and they're getting together we just did ours our Wednesday and it was incredible it was so wonderful to get together we could see each other we prayed together we studied God's word together we even praised God together and we felt that fellowship and just the the bonding that was taking place so if you're not involved in a life group call the office Pastor Dan will plug you into a life group. Life group leaders, I know it might be a little difficult, but learn how to do the Zoom and get that going, okay? Because we want to fellowship together. And so that's my uh, advice to you. Uh, Let's pray. Father, we see Jesus who has power over sickness and death. And we cry out to you. We want to see this power. Show your power, oh God. Let us see this again. Do it again, God. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Do your incredible exploits, Lord. And we ask that you would kick out the pandemic, kick out the coronavirus. We ask that you would protect us, put your wall of fire around us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's praise God now.